The labor market is affected by a variety of factors, but how often do you stop to think how or why your employer does what they do in regards to hiring, payroll, pensions, and the like? I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, and we're going to get into the forces behind the labor market today. This is the Trinity University Learning Together podcast series. Each month, this podcast features faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who've established themselves as experts in their fields. It's all part of the university's lifelong learning initiative designed especially for alumni. Today, you'll hear a conversation with Trinity University's economics professor David McPherson about why he says pensions are good and minimum wages are bad for the labor market. A lot of people who are in favor of the minimum wage increases to save $15 an hour are assuming that just because you're a low-wage worker, that means you come from a low-income family. And that's really the, I think the intent is that by helping low-wage workers, you're going to reduce the poverty rate. McPherson is joined in the conversation by his former student, Marissa Lepper, class of 2015, who's now pursuing a graduate degree at the University of Pittsburgh. Their conversation attempts to offer clarity on what minimum wages are meant to do and whether minimum wage laws increase or reduce poverty rates. The conversation also addresses how workers might benefit from pension plans. Hi, Marissa. Hi, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Thank you for having me on. I'm really glad to have this opportunity to talk to you about the labor market. Today, we're specifically going to be talking about why pensions are good and minimum wage is bad for the labor market which is something that you definitely have extensive research on. You've published a lot on and are an expert in this area. So I think it's really important for people to hear what you have to say about it because these are two topics that policy implications have wide-reaching economic implications. But I think that there's a lot of perceptions that people have So to start out with, why don't you tell us about what minimum wages are supposed to accomplish or what's the goal of this policy? Well, a lot of people who are in favor of the minimum wage increases to, say, $15 an hour are assuming that just because you're a low-wage worker, that means you come from a low-income family. And that's really the, I think the intent is that by helping low-wage workers, you're going to reduce the poverty rate. And do people in empirical research, do they actually find that minimum wage increases or minimum wage policies are effective in reducing poverty rates? Not very much. Most minimum wage workers, in fact, come from um, higher income families. Uh, They tend to be part-time workers, secondary workers in a family. So there's actually relatively few people who are below the poverty line who are earning the minimum wage. So it really doesn't do much to reducing the poverty rate at all. So if it doesn't have the effects that they're looking for, are there any other negative implications of this policy? Are there any bad effects of having the minimum wage? Or is it just that it it doesn't really help? Well, actually, the bottom line is that you have to pay for this wage increase somehow. There really is no free lunch in um, economics. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) So what's going to happen is employers are first going to try to uh, offset the effects of a wage increase by a lot of different ways. One way to do it is by reducing uh, fringe benefits. And that's kind of hard to do for minimum wage workers since they typically don't have a lot of fringe benefits. So what do you mean by uh, fringe benefits? Uh, be things like health insurance or pensions, things like that. 
So that's usually not a big impact um, of the minimum wage, though there is evidence that it does tend to reduce fringe benefits. Um, another way they could do it is by reducing training of the workers. And there is evidence that that happens. And some of the work that I've been working on is looking at what happens to future wage increases. That is, if the minimum wage goes up a lot this year, what happens to the wage increases next year and the following year uh, for workers? And the work I'm working on right now with uh, Bill Even suggests that, in fact, employers try to um, claw back the minimum wage increase by reducing wage increases in the future. So you might get a wage boost one year, but then you get a lower wage increase the next year. Um, so it just kind of ends up not having a long-term wage effect. Yeah, to the, yeah they're going to try and do what they best they can do to offset it. Um, and if they can't offset it through fringe benefits or future wage increases or um, reduced training, which reduced training is a bad thing because more training leads to higher wages in the future. Um, they, they'll either try to reduce uh, profits will get reduced or uh, the firms will try and pass the wage increase on to consumers through higher prices um, or if they can't do that, they'll lower employment. And I think a clear majority of the evidence suggests that the higher minimum wage does, in fact, reduce employment. Um, the Congressional Budget Office has done a, an analysis, which is a nonpartisan agency uh, of Congress, that the, a $15 minimum wage instituted in 2025 would reduce employment by uh, 1.3 million workers. That's a pretty large number. I mean, some workers would, in fact, benefit. In fact, more, uh, about 17 million workers would have a, a wage increase. So there are winners and losers. Um, but on net, incomes go down uh, in this Congressional Budget Office through the higher prices or the lower profits or the workers getting laid off. And well, like you mentioned, um, it's supposed to help low-income families, but the people who will have their wages increasing aren't necessarily the low-income families. So with this, you said, do you think that there's a better way to help workers from the low-income families? Yeah, I think the, the best way would be the uh, earned income tax credit. And that's uh, basically a wage subsidy that the workers get um, uh, for who are low-wage workers who are part of a low-wage, low-income family. And so that what happens is, is that uh, for every dollar you earn, then the government kicks back money to you uh, through um, negative income taxes. So in other words, instead of paying income taxes, the worker receives a check from the government. Um, and the more you work, the more you get uh, back in terms of these income taxes. And they give negative income taxes, basically. Uh, if you have children, they give you more than if you don't. And um, it goes up, and then it flattens out for a while. Then by the upper 50s, it phases out. Um, upper, that's upper 50s, I'd say. Uh, that is making more than uh, 55,000 or so. Um, so I think that, and that's been shown to really have some positive impacts on um, families in the sense that it encourages people to go to work because they now get more money. Um, 
if they get uh, earnings. And the more they work, the more they get up to a cap. And also, it um, doesn't have that negative employment effects of a higher minimum wage. That is, the workers get the subsidy, but it doesn't cost the firms more money. So then there's not these negative impacts from the firm trying to deal with having to compensate the workers more? Exactly. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to the conversation with Professor David McPherson and Marissa Lepper. So now to turn to something that has positive impacts on the labor market. Can you talk about pensions specifically? What type of pensions are there that people should be offered? Yeah, I've uh, done a lot of work over the my career looking at pensions, and there are really two major types. One is a traditional pension, which... Uh, sometimes it's called a defined benefit pension plan. And what happens in that kind of pension is that um, it's based on how much you earn at the end of your career or employment and how long you've been with the firm and a uh, and how generous the pension is. And the other type is called uh, defined contribution plans. And they're best known as a 401k type plan. And what happens there is the employer gives a certain percentage to the plan, and the worker gives a, a certain percentage. And the worker typically is a, it's a voluntary amount so that uh, you can give nothing, you can give up to, uh, uh, say, 5 6%. And so how much in terms of pension benefits you get is really determined by how much you put aside into this plan and how what kind of rate of return you get on your investments. So if you uh, invest well, you'll get a higher pension benefit than if you, uh, you know, make risky investments that don't turn out well or you um, put it in uh, very safe assets that don't tend to grow. So how is the popularity of both the defined contribution pensions and the defined benefit plans changed over time? Well, defined Contribution plans, those 401k plans, have skyrocketed in popularity over time um, relative to traditional pension plans. Traditional pension plans are, are really at lar- some large firms, and particularly in the public sector, they tend to have a lot of defined benefit plans. And even there, they're shifting towards defined contribution. And there's several reasons why. One is, is there have been movements away from manufacturing, which tended to have defined contribution plans towards service industries. Um, defined contribution plans, such as 401ks, tend to have lower operating costs. That is, is that there's less administrative costs, and um, also there's fewer regulations on defined contribution plans. And a related issue that turns out uh, to be important is that uh, firms will take a lot more of the risk of investing um, if you have a traditional pension plan than a defined contribution plan. They shift the risk to the worker from the firm. So in a traditional pension plan, 
the firm is guaranteeing you a pension benefit, no matter how well the stock market does or doesn't do. If you're a defined contribution plan, you're the one who takes the risk. So shifting of that risk has certainly been a, a motivating factor as well. Besides people getting the pension payout once they retire, what are other benefits that workers might get from having a pension? Well, one of the things that I've spent a, a fair amount of my career looking at is what are the uh, incentive effects of pensions. And um, one of the things that defined benefit plans do is they penalize you if you quit early, uh, before the end of your normal retirement age. And they penalize you by giving you a, a, a significant reduction in your pension benefit. And defined contribution plans um, also have incentive effects in the sense that uh, those people who join firms that offer a defined contribution plan are going to attract people who value the future more, uh, who are concerned about their retirement. And so that I, I found that workers who are, who are uh, in defined contribution plans, even if they don't have a penalty associated with um, quitting, tend to have lower turnover. And these multiple these uh, turnover effects have uh, multiple factors effects of them. Uh, one of the things that uh, I, I've looked at over time is looked at the effect of pensions on training. And we know that if you provide workers with more training, they will get uh, higher wages in the future. And pensions, um, since they lower turnover, enable firms to offer more training and because they can count on the workers staying at the firm so they can recoup their investment. And another thing I've looked at over time is on nurses and looked at the effect of pensions on them. Uh, there's a lot of evidence indicating that when you're at uh, hospitals or nursing homes that have high turnover, they're more likely uh, those nurses to make mistakes. And so I found that by having those pensions on the job, they reduce turnover, which should reduce uh, medical errors, which would help patients. Uh, and, and another one I've done, one of my earliest papers I've done is looking at the effect of pensions on um, discrimination against women. And one of the things that pensions said earlier tend to have um, penalties if you quit, particularly traditional pensions, uh, quit the job early. Uh, so what happens is if you know you're going to stick in a, in a job, then then the employer was less likely to discriminate against um, women in a sense that they, they have a signal to the employer, hey, I'm not going to quit on you because um, women on average tend to have a higher quit rate, um, particularly amongst those with uh, less education. And so that tends to reduce the gender wage gap. Oh, so it sounds like there's um, a lot of far-reaching positive benefits to pension. Are there uh, any negative effects? Yeah, one of the prob one of the uh, problems that uh, is the defined contribution plans is is that um, every everybody doesn't have to participate in the defined contribution plan. Um, so it's voluntary in in a lot of cases. So that how much you contribute uh, to the plan uh, is up to you. In a defined benefit plan, everybody participates. Um, and so that what's going to happen is, is that you're going to get more inequality in retirement income 
under defined contribution plans than under uh, defined benefit plans. I, I found in an analysis looking at it that look at the top part of the distribution of the income. It doesn't really make too much difference between defined benefit and defined contribution plans. But in the bottom third of the distribution, uh, defined contribution plans, uh, workers tend not to participate. And so, and even worse, they tend to cash out their uh, balances in their plan. So one of the things is, is that you accumulate money in, in essence, a tax-free savings account. Well, if you quit the job, you can go um, access the money. And there's another actual uh, thing I'm working on is uh, how pensions impede phased retirement. What happens is, is that under um, traditional pension plans, this is the opposite side of the story, uh, you can't uh, go to a part-time job unless you quit the firm. And a defined contribution plan, you can take out some of your pension plan if you're old enough and still continue to work. So you can f do a phased retirement uh, under these defined contribution plans. So it's got some pluses and got some minuses. Yeah, it seems like it's talked about a lot in economics. There's said earlier winners and losers and positive and negative effects. But overall, do you say pensions are good for the labor market? Yeah, I would say they're they're good in the sense that they help provide people income in retirement. Um, it has these good effects on worker turnover, um, and it and it, which has those good effects on medical errors and um, increased training for workers. I, I think it's a good benefit that workers gain from. All right. Well, thank you for having this conversation about the pensions and minimum wage. They're uh, effects on the labor market. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Learning Together podcast. I'm Nathan Cohn. Today's episode was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the last Friday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.